1: Though uh, these matters, as I say, are just being studied now, and the opinion is being formed, the elective use of life-sustaining treatment um, is um, an integral component of clinical practice, and the, uh, there, are, there are five steps to uh, what most clinics um, go through in order to arrive at uh, decisions. Uh, the first, and it, it's a series of, 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 it's an algorithm, it's a series of questions. Um, first is, is the patient dead? Is the patient brain dead? Of course, is the more specific question. If the person is dead, you don't have to worry so much. Um, secondly, um, what specific clinical decision is being considered? I'll, I'll elaborate these in a bit. Um, third, Is the patient competent? Now, I want to spend some time on that question, and I also want to look at um, the uh, the matter of of substituted judgment. Wenberg alludes to that, and and, uh, i have some other material for you on that. Uh, Fourth, are the incompetent patient's wishes known? And fifth, are any external factors affecting the decision? Um, In the brain-dead patient, Treatment may be discontinued without further consideration of patient wishes. In all other cases, the patient's wishes do determine what you're going to do. Um, Competent patients can state their own wishes, and after adequate discussion, these wishes should be followed, um, at least in most cases. Um, Incompetent patients cannot state their wishes directly. The, fish, the, the physician has to gather evidence here um, about the patient's prior wishes. If the evidence is clear, such wishes should also be followed. When possible, uh, physicians are encouraged to discuss these matters with the patients while the patient is, is competent. But, of course, that's a very idealistic situation, very ideal situation. Um, it does happen, but uh, as I think I've pointed out before, one feels awkward about Discussing uh, something that might happen 20 years down the line when you're incompetent, you should do it, but it's it's awkward, it's hard. Um, now, um, um, to get back to the Cruzan case, Cruzan, um, uh, this 32-year-old Missouri woman uh, who's been in a, a persistent vegetative state since 1983 because of an automobile accident, uh, with almost uh, no chance of regaining consciousness. You remember, um, she was kept alive by a feeding tube. Um, And um, before the accident, she had said uh, she would not want to live if she couldn't be at least, quote, halfway normal. Um, And three years ago, uh, her parents asked the hospital to remove the feeding tube but the hospital refused, so the Cruzans took them to court, and that, as you know, that's history. Um, now, um, this particular uh, case um, was appealed to the Supreme Court, and in a five- to-four decision, the Supreme Court upheld the Missouri Court ruling against the Cruzan family. And the the court held that while a competent patient has a constitutional right to refuse life-sustaining treatment, an incompetent patient who's unable to make an informed and voluntary choice does not automatically possess this right. The court ruled that states may establish procedural safeguards to guide such decisions for incompetent patients, and Missouri's safeguards are acceptable. Uh... Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in the concurring opinion quote, today we decide only that one state's practice does not violate the constitution the more challenging task of crafting appropriate procedure for the safe for safeguarding in, incompetence liberty interests is entrusted to the laboratory of the states and indeed that's exactly where it's going on um, This uh, very interesting um, person named Claire C. Obeid, O-B-A-D-E, who is uh, one of the legal experts on self-determination questions, um, suggests that after 15 years of court decisions and legislation culminating in the Cruzan case, uh, two directions, two new directions, elective use of life-sustaining treatments ought to be um, implemented. Research and public education. Uh, first of all, she wants uh, further research because uh, you need to improve the management of, of patients at the end of life. Um, a, a clinical index of patient competency um, is needed, according to her. and. Um, improved methods of, of uh, finding out what a patient wants, documenting it, and so forth, also is needed. And finally, more basic research needs to be done on, on um, uh, epi- ep- 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 epidemiology, the sickness involved in the spread of it, uh, uh, of elective use of life-sustaining treatments. And then she also strongly favors public education. Um, so that every patient can have the option of discussing end-of-life matters with, with their physician. Um, and um, so I, I think as Christians we can applaud that. Uh, I think that uh, we want to bear in mind, however, all the time, um, the, the dangers that, um, that our friend Wenberg um, mentions, and that is that if you get too excited about this and go too far with it too fast, It can open up the door to all kinds of carelessness about uh, life and about the right to um, to die with dignity and so on. And and, and, you know, you just want to be very careful how you proceed. Uh, You don't. This is not one of those causes where you just want to take up a lot of banners and and uh, and and run with it. Um, You want to be very cautious. I would suggest. Um, All right. Any questions about? Any questions about that uh, before we get to um, the substituted judgment questions?
0: All right. If
1: I can find my stuff here. Two. Yeah. Uh, yes, although the t- the term is, is, is a lo- is itself uh, is under uh, is under debate. A lot of people don't like the term uh, extraordinary versus ordinary. Um, they go for the more uh, specific options relating to a specific treatment um, because they've recognized that uh, what is extraordinary to one person is quite ordinary to another. Uh, so. Uh, um, but that's right. That's where it, that's where it falls. I saved a whole thing I wanted to do with you on this. It'll come. It'll,
0: it'll show up. I ran across the definition last night my research. Ordinary, research I mean ordinary treatment allows the body and its organs through the treatment to resume normal function. Yeah. Extraordinary treatment has to perform the functions for the body or for particular organs.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that has some... It has some merit, although, um, you know, you have the... I, I, I It may be hard to pin down in, the, in in actual practice. I mean, when I take an aspirin, um, it, it performs certain things for me, you know. It uh, supposedly opens my arteries. I don't know if... I don't take it for that reason, but you know, it's doing something that um, my body won't do. But I don't consider that sort of extraordinary treatment or life-preserving treatment. No,
0: but it's allowing, it's like it's the treatment allows the body to function by itself better. extraordinary surgery, yeah. but if the end result is that it restores you to where you can function without continued life support or something like that, then it's not considered an extraordinary surgery, extraordinary treatment.
1: But I mean, yeah, okay, I mean, my my brother had appendicitis a few years ago. He would have died, you know if he um, were living in the 19th century because they didn't take appendix out. But no one can, that I know considers it extraordinary treatment to take someone's appendix out. you know. Um, uh, but it, I mean, I, I just find the line is hard to draw between um, allowing someone to do something that they naturally do and doing it for them. Um, a uh, doctor that I used to have come in to teach part of my ethics course in, in Connecticut Roman Catholic fellow he used to say all the doctor does is to help um, God and nature this is how he put it God and nature do their job and now this is, you know, the theology is a little shaky there but his basic point was that um, um, the, the the function of medicine is to set the body up so that it can heal itself and, um, and he threw the name God in there and he believed that even some of the most extraordinary treatment that was the hope of it, it may not have resulted in that, you know, and, that, and that's too bad but the hope of it was that it would eventually help that person get back on the track and heal themselves, I mean even a ventilator is supposed to be for that purpose, it's not supposed to be to, to uh, forever do it for you um, so I guess I you know I I'd, I'd want to uh, I'd want to just be sure you didn't mean that the you know that, that distinction was too too rigid versus uh, non-burdensome is somewhat helpful as well. Um, If if you're burdening the patient at the time of death with uh, sort of cruel and unusual treatment, um, though it may preserve them for a while, uh, that is um, morally questionable. And I find that m- more helpful than extraordinary versus ordinary. Like, you know, it puts, it, uh, it puts the weight of it on the negative place that it should have, whether you're, you're, you're burdening the patient or not. Um, because, uh, see, the, the idea of extraordinary or ordinary, or even heroic measures, or not heroic, always has this moral connotation that, that the, uh, the doctor and the hospital are going to save this person. And... Um, um, you we ho- always hope for that, uh, but in the case of, of terminal choices, um, you know, putting people on on ventilators and, and feeding machines and so forth um, is is uh, it, it only becomes heroic if it works, and um, it often doesn't. It often doesn't just save a person. It it it, it you know it, it preserves them for a while and then and then they die. So. It, I think to take away the moral connotation of, of the, the Messiah there is, is, is good, um, and think of the, what the patient's frame again says that um, you want to apply the golden rule. What would you like them to do to you in that case? You know, how would you like them to respect your body in that case? Um, okay, um, the uh, the the issue of uh, substituted judgment um, is is a crucial question because obviously um, the there are many cases where the patient uh... cannot uh... and cannot really any longer decide and um... again this is one of those areas where it's not as easy as it may appear Um, uh, substituted judgment is actually a legally recognized term uh and um, the uh the, the question is what decision would this incompetent patient make uh were that, that patient competent? Um, now again in the Cruzan case uh, uh it's important to realize that uh, The nature of the Supreme Court's decision, um, which is often misstated, as a matter of fact, um, was put very simply uh, by uh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist, which is that for a patient in a a persistent vegetative state, uh, the federal constitution does not compel physicians to follow the orders of an incompetent adult's guardians that her tube feeding be withdrawn and thereby hastening her death, it's, it's at least where the incompetent wishes are not clearly known. Okay? So, for a patient in, in the PVS, the federal constitution does not compel physicians and make them follow the orders of an incompetent adult's guardian. That her tube feeding be withdrawn, or more technically, the decision found that it is not unconstitutional for the state of Missouri to require clear and convincing evidence of an incompetent's wishes before giving mandatory effect to her parents' wish to stop feeding her. Okay, it is not it's not unconstitutional for for Missouri, to require clear and convincing evidence uh, that of this patient's wishes, who, this patient who is now incompetent, uh, before um, allowing the parents to stop feeding her, and the effect of this limited holding is that states may now choose to require to require clear and convincing evidence in cases like Cruzan. They they may choose to require. States are not required to do so, of course, but they they now have a, a, a backing from the federal um, court um, to require clear, convincing evidence. Um, In Pennsylvania, for example, by consequence, um, there's a lot of latitude uh, since state law, um, in in this particular state, uh, both case and statutory law are silent on the subject. On the other hand, um, in New Jersey, um, which has well-developed Uh, and some would say, you know, seminal, uh, judge-made laws on these issues, Um, then providers and attorneys can continue to follow the helpful guidelines for substituted judgment analysis uh, set out in cases like uh, uh, Quinlan. As a matter of fact, the New Jersey legislature is moving fairly fast uh, towards a legislative initiative, so, so now Cruzan uh, has an immediate uh, effect in only one jurisdiction, that is Missouri. But it becomes a, of course a seedbed for, uh, for other kinds of states to act in other ways. Um, there in Missouri, state courts and presumably providers who are um, comfortable with this. Uh, will continue to apply the test set out by Missouri Supreme Court uh, in in the Cruzan case, and living wills will be governed by the statute enacted by the state legislature. You may want to know um, that New York... Um, which is, of course, a jurisdiction that's very interested in the Cruzan holding because it had such famous parallel cases. Um, legislative action's already been taken to allow competent adults to appoint agents to make healthcare decisions in the event they lose their decision-making capacity. Um, th- there's a statute uh, which doesn't really permit more liberal, substantive, substantive decisions, uh, but it's designed to avoid court involvement in Cruzan like cases. Um, and it codifies rather than rejects the 1988 state court decision, most like Missouri's Cruzan. Um, now, There's a famous case called the O'Connor case, where a hospital sought court authorization to administer uh, the nasogastric tube feedings to an incompetent 77-year-old who was severely debilitated and neurologically depressed, although her state was not so deep as a coma or technical PVS, resistant vegetative state. And in that case, the New York Court of Appeals not only reaffirmed uh, the state's uh, cruzan-type standard, uh, that is, the clear and convincing evidence of a patient's wishes must be known, but it also added the requirement that a patient's wishes must rise to the level of a a firm and settled commitment arrived at, while still competent, to have life supports terminated under circumstances like those presented. The general statements made in the past by the patient, um, such as her wish not to be a burden, the belief that life support machinery is monstrous, or her wish not to lose human dignity before death, were not held to be sufficient. That's not enough. It's got to be a written, clear statement. You can't just sort of remember, oh yeah, aunt so-and-so said I remember her saying this in the living room after dinner she didn 't want to be a burden that 's not enough you 've got to have legal um, legal statements. Um, the fact finder that is required um, is quote as far as humanly possible to be convinced that a patient 's belief to his or her commitment to those beliefs were sufficiently strong." Uh, as to make it unlikely that the patient had experienced a recent change of heart. Now, um, in, the, uh, in the O'Connor case, uh, it's indic- indicative of pro-life conservatism um, because the court uh, justified imposing the most rigorous burden of proof applied in civil cases. And their reason for it was, quote, because of an error. If an error occurs, it should be made on the side of life. And I think that's a, something we, we would, I would certainly applaud. Uh, now, again, Claire C. Obeyed in an article in the Journal of Clinical Ethics, fall of 1990, says... Um, she comments on these two cases. She says, "In the light of O'Connor and Cruzan, activists in the state of New York were able to to get top legislative priority for a new law. Um, July twenty second, nineteen ninety. This law permits a competent adult to appoint a healthcare surrogate or agent, um, and um, it requires uh, the incompetent patient's wishes." regarding artificial nutrition and hydration to be reasonably known or with reasonable diligence to be ascertained. And if they can't be, the agent doesn't have the authority to make the decision. Um, Now, I've got a lot more legal stuff here. Uh, Let me just uh, pause. Um, How do we then feel about the issue of, of the incompetent patients ability to decide are we generally comfortable with the way the New York law is gone and so on do we do we think uh, there ought to be more weight given to the um, the competent relative or um, should the competent relative have no uh, have no authority how, how do how do we as Christians uh, handle that perhaps it well, yeah. Let, let me ask another type of question quite related to that. Do you think that legislation should be uh, super clear on who has the right to make these decisions? Is it good for legislation to be um, uh, making those decisions? What, what i see in principle, trying to draw a parallel, it has to
0: do with... Making your wishes known, that clearly known, so that should you die, there will be no question about what is to happen with your property, or who is to receive custody of your children, or something like that. So that the state does not become the an arbiter. And I think this is the same thing as the state. And I don't like the idea that it's being left up to the state. I think that that should be something that you should be able to direct who is going to be able to make those decisions for you if you are no longer able.
1: I guess that's right, yeah. I, um, I, In general, I think there's some wisdom in having the state play a very modest role in all of this um, because there's so many different cases and you don't want to tie physicians' or relatives' hands behind their backs uh, by getting too involved here. On the other hand, of course, it is a matter of, 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 of legality since the Constitution protects life and um, there has to be... Uh, um, there has to be intervention there um, I think I feel somewhat that way about abortion law um, I think a, a country should have laws that promote life and, and therefore forbidding abortion is, a, is probably a good thing but I think if we get too specific on what kinds of abortions we forbid what kinds we allow, how it's going to be funded what kind of advice you can give I think you're going you're to find yourself in a, uh, a a law glut. You're going to find yourself in a, a country which is um, overwhelmed by um, specific directives that you'll regret ha- having to uh, uh, tr- conform to in every single case. Um, it, it's better to have, I think, general principles, but not always to get terribly, terribly specific. Again, in the, uh, in the Cruzan case, um, it's interesting that, um, that the court reasoned um, that uh, because the treatment decision would would bring about death or almost certainly uh, it had to be at least as informed as the decision to accept treatment right and and the court, made its own judgment as to the unreliability of evidence offered at trial as to Nancy's views on such a matter. And that's why it said feeding could not be withheld. But also the court rejected the principle that constitutional and common law rights to privacy and self-determination give rise to the incompetence rights to surrogate decision making in these situations, and uh, the, the the court instead found that any such rights were outweighed by the state's interest in the sanctity of life itself, regardless of the quality of that life. A very interesting. Uh, uh, see, there's a there's a way uh, I think in which Christians might act. Um, a couple of the the Supreme Court justices are known to be Christians, at least in their general confessions, and I would rather imagine... let's see, who, who was that particular opinion? Um, no, it, it doesn't say here. I just have a quote from the decision itself which says um, any such right um, to the incompetent uh, to surrogate decision-making um, are outweighed by the state's interest in the sanctity of life itself regardless of the quality of that life. That's quite a statement, I think. We're so used to bashing the Supreme Court in Christian circles, but um, that's, that's a very uh, Christian statement. Um, one of the more interesting uh, aspects of the majority opinion in Cruzan is how strongly they attacked uh the, the seemingly sacros- sacrosanct Quinlan case. Um, um, here, I, let me quote this. Now, let me see if I think I have the person here. Now, this is just in the case. Cruzan versus Harmon. Prior to Quinlan, the common law preferred to err on the side of life. Choices for incompetence were made to preserve life, not hasten death. Quinlan changed that calculus. Moving from the common law's prejudice in favor of life, Quinlan subtly recast the state's interest in life as an interest in the quality of life, struck a balance between quality of life and Karen Quinlan's right to privacy, and permitted the termination of a life-sustaining procedure. By the rhetorical device of replacing a concern for life with quality of life, the court managed to avoid affronting previously accepted norms in reaching its decision. Um, the court identified a serious flaw in arguments made by Right to Die advocates that PVS patients should be spared the suffering and pain of undergoing invasive treatments. They rightly, uh, in my opinion, pointed out the incongruity of this argument in the light of the medical profession's belief that, the, that PVS patients are neurologically incapable of perceiving pain. Uh, Again, um, there was so much fuzziness in the Roe v. Wade case just medically. And here, I think they've done better medical research. Um, Just in parentheses, there are people who are pointing out that um, it's one thing to be elected or nominated. It's another thing to have a staff that does the work for you, and um, the skeptical prognosis is that as less and less competent people get elected and nominated to various offices, um, the crucial role of the staff, of the research person, will be um, um, what's going to affect some of these decisions. Um, And indeed, the Supreme Court, though of course you have nine judges who are supposedly of very, very highest caliber, uh, relies a great deal on the just hundreds of staff people who do research for them. Medical research, of course legal research, uh, ethical research, and so on. And um, you just hope that you have good people, responsible people working on uh, on their staffs. Okay, um, again this uh, Obeyed, um, Claire obeyed. It makes um, a number of suggestions. She has five suggestions in the light of of Cruzan, uh, and particularly with the um, Quinlan case in the background. Um, uh, she first says we need to consult state law and determine its procedural and substantive limits. And um, she suggests that if 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 Your jurisdiction is silent on the issue to be guided by mainstream substituted judgment analysis, as best articulated, she thinks, in in the New Jersey line. And maybe um, I think I have that. Um, Maybe I'll bring in some photocopies of the uh, New Jersey line, as well as the the Pennsylvania line, uh, for you next week. Second, she suggests facilities adopt policies for the procedural and substantive aspects of decision to withdraw life-sustaining care including artificial nutrition and hydration, um, but only within the parameters of established state law. Um, and third, individuals ought to edu- uh, execute durable powers of attorney. She's very big on that, and I think I am too, um, more than the, uh, the living will. will. She says it ought to be there ought to be specific and advanced directives now I've commented on my reservations about how specific you can be because you just can't have um, millions of cases um, and expect the person to be competent to that um, Fourth, those with a political agenda of some kind should contact legislators with their respective messages but um, uh, she, uh, she reminds them that uh, you can't take what the Supreme Court has decided as being a moral um, uh, principle that covers all cases. Uh, they, they, had to, they had to make a very, very narrow decision. Not that it was conservative or anything or irrational. It just was narrow. Because was a, that's one thing I think very few people understand about the law is that it, it's, it sometimes seems odd to us because all it's doing is responding to a very particular case and, and giving some answers for that. And it doesn't always do so, so in such a way as to elaborate general principle. And um, finally, she says, in specific cases, remember that family members do sometimes make misguided, premature, or not completely unselfish decisions. Um... Families' uh, rights and conflicts of interests are, are often uh, a big part of this. Um, I believe that we ought to protect the uh, incompetence from rash or misguided surrogate decision-making. And uh, I think advanced planning is desirable. But I think with Wenberg we have to be very careful not to jump into this thing um, without a lot of forethought. All right. um, Any any comments on this whole area of um, substituted judgment? I agree with everything. <laughs> um, all right, one last thing, and then we'll quit. Um, infanticide. Um, what is Wenberg? Do you remember what Wenberg's position is on that? Well, let me ask you: Is there any difference morally between um, a uh, an infant who is severely handicapped, and an adult in a persistent vegetative state, in terms of you know, what the case involves.
0: Care probably not including if, if they aren't killed, say, a child that is severely retarded, needs a lot of parental care, right? Or even being institutionalized the whole life. Which for the parents is a huge difference, yeah. Burden, that, right. may, that may be a motivating
1: factor of the decision. All right, that's one very important thing. Um, the future of the child. Uh, another important thing would be, of course, the fact that the child was never competent to decide, whereas the PBS patient might have been, probably was. Um, Wenberg as you as you know, has the position that you. Um, though you don't have to do everything to preserve the life of a child, you should be very, very careful to do anything that would be voluntary euthanasia, that would be imposing euthanasia on a a child. Um, He he points out, uh, first of all, that a handicapped life is a life just the same, um, and the right to life cannot be removed from somebody simply because of handicapped, even though that handicap may be very severe. Um, There is some confusion, he says, about whether infants have a right to life, but he he tends to to think that they do. Another thing that he says um, is to be very careful about altruism that says that uh, infanticide is carried out for the sake of the infant because it spares the infinite an intolerable existence. Um, He says, and I I don't know enough about this, maybe some of you do, but he says that few mentally or physically defective individuals, in fact, find life so intolerable that they want to die. I have worked in a very limited way with uh, cerebral palsied children. And um, none of the those children that I worked with um, wanted to die. In fact, most of them seemed quite contented. But I realize that's only one kind of handicap, and there are others which might make you more, uh, more miserable. Um, but yeah,
0: most, most center,
1: are not unhappy.
0: Yes, yeah, also but they're very you know, and a lot more pleasant will know over true?
1: <laughs> there are kinds of handicaps which involve a lot of suffering, of course. Um, and there's various types of suffering. There's physical pain, but there's also, you know, persecution from a society that doesn't understand. Um, another area of concern, he says, um, is that death with dignity is amorphous and ill-defined uh, and you want to be very careful not to make death something highly wonderful and noble um, because um, that just glorifies something that isn't uh, isn't glorious. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I agree with that. He's a he's a tremendous ethicist. Okay, um, next time we um, we will be discussing the physician, pastor, patient relationship. Um, uh, this will be uh, an attempt to uh, to deal with um, the uh, the spheres of. Responsibility and sovereignty of, of various players in the healthcare game, and we're, I want to move out away now from all of this thing on self-determination and talk in more general terms. Um, and uh, the reading is is in that huge thing. Um, there's not a lot of it, but it's a an interesting uh, an interesting article that. I think you'll find it interesting. And I will bring in uh, photocopies of that uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey legislation, the case laws, and the court laws, um, so that you can, we can, we'll discuss that briefly at the beginning of the next hour.